Hello. Hi. 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 Hello. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about building open, authentic, loving relationship. I'm curious about jealousy. I'm curious about polyamory. Does it just mean that you're fucking all the time? How can I tell my parents that my partner is already married? I'm curious about... How do you know when you're too busy to have another relationship? I'm curious about dominant and subordinate relationships. I'm curious about sexual health. How can relationships evolve with people as they grow and change? Hi, welcome to the Curious Fox podcast. For those challenging the status quo in love, sex, and relationships, my name is Effie Blue. And I'm Jacqueline Misla. And on today's episode, Effie and I are speaking with Dr. Eli Sheff about her decades-long research of polyamorous families. We interviewed Dr. Sheff a few weeks ago to talk about her work with The Bonding Project and ended up asking her to stay on and record another conversation about her book highlighting her research on children in polyamorous families. And so... I just want to note that while this episode is certainly interesting for parents and caregivers and grown-ups with significant little people in their lives, it's also really fascinating listen for anyone who is concerned about or navigating through the stigma that society places on relationships, gender identities, or sexual expression that is outside of the prescribed box. Anyone who has had to confront the reality that what brings them joy may piss other people off... Dr. Chef talks about the impact of stigma and the resilient skills that are developed as a result of living in a big, full, complicated life. Yeah. And Dr. Chef is a doctor of sociology uh, and one of the very few scientists that actually studies polyamorous families over a long period of time. Uh, she's the author of The Polyamorous Next Door, When Someone You Love Is Polyamorous, and Stories from the Polycule, all excellent books. She's also a regular contributor to Psychology Today and an active friend of the Fox. I love her. She's one of my favorite people. She's a fellow nerd and we learn a lot and we hope that you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. So we are thrilled to have Dr. Eli Sheff back on again with us, and this time to talk about a book that is not a new book, and it's actually been research that you've been doing for a really long time, but something that I recently discovered and was, uh, you know, incredibly interested in, like, delved in it as quickly as possible, um, because on the podcast before, I've, I've not only talked about my daughter and about being a parent in an open relationship, but we have had my daughter on as a guest of the podcast and she has shared her experience. And so as a parent and someone who takes my parenting to be one of the most serious things that I do and one of the most important things that I do in my lifetime, I am have always been really interested in her experience as a result of my choices. And how can I create an environment where she can feel safe to be all of who she is? And that's a lot of the work that you have been doing. And so let's just start there. Can you give us some context around all of the research that went into this book? You know, I started researching polyamorous families in 1996. Well, I first I started with the parents. So I was just looking at people in polyamorous relationships. So I think of that as the parent generation. And most of them are Gen X or the very tail end of the baby boom, because that was who was adult and having polyamorous relationships in the mid nineties, mid to late nineties. When you do research at a university, you have to get permission to do it from there's an institutional research board that guides the way you're able to do things. And they were very concerned about the children and would not let me talk to children at first. It took a lot of time and effort to get permission to talk to kids. So by the time I was finally talking to the children, I had all these expectations of, you know, what they might say because of what the parents were saying. And it was really interesting to hear things from the kids' perspective that some of the things the parents had identified as really important were important to the children, and some of them were not. Or some of the things that I went in thinking, oh, this is going to be a really big deal, ended up being not nearly the big deal I thought it was going to be. Like, for instance, missing parents' partners who leave. 
I was like, oh, that's going to be a big deal. You know, I better ask questions about that. I better see how the kids feel about that. And a lot of the kids did not think that was that big of an issue, in part because even when parents break up with their partners, sometimes those people are still around in their social environment. The end of a sexual relationship doesn't mean necessarily that there's this big dramatic blowout and now they never see that person again. Sometimes they transition to platonic friendship. Also, when parents date other parents, generally that other parent comes and brings their children. So the people the children hang out with are the other children because the parents are behind closed doors. You know, they come out and they're like, here's all the remotes. Here's three fresh pizzas you know, <laughs> and a chocolate cake. <laughs> Give us three hours. Like, don't knock on this door for three hours. <laughs> and so the kids are actually really bonding with each other. So if then the parents break up, it's not as much that they miss that other adult, it's the children or the pets. Sometimes the children are really bonded with the pets and they're like, yeah, adults, whatever, adults are boring, but boy, that cat was awesome and I miss that cat, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I never considered that. That makes a lot of sense. I'm interested in that idea of worrying about the children as a society, hopefully a thriving society cares about and worries about their children. And when a society's constructs align with particular moral prescriptions, it means that anything outside the construct could potentially be damaging the children. And we are all alarmed about that. And I remember certainly, again, having that feeling and that experience as a parent. But then when having the conversation with my own mother about being in an open relationship, she and I years earlier had had conversations about being in a relationship with a woman and there was Bible verse after Bible verse that I was given and, you know, had to kind of uh, navigate my way through that biblical obstacle course. And then the second time around, I was ready because I was like, there's polyamory in the Bible. So like, I'm ready for you. (laughs) So then when she came and she was like, you know, what's this and that? I was like, this verse, this verse, this verse. And she was like, well, this is not about the Bible. I was like, oh, this one is not about the Bible. (laughs) And she was like, it's about the children. Like, what about Mm. your daughter? And what is she going to learn from this? And I, I was like, that many people can love her. And that she can love openly, like that's what she's going to learn. And she's Mm -hmm. like, but all the people in and out of her, her life. And I shared, you know, her father who has dated several people, certainly since we've been divorced, has brought actually more people into her life than I have having been in an open relationship. And so I'm sure you get asked that question a lot and I'm interested in your answer, but you know, Dr. Eli, what about the children? Well, there definitely is this assumption in society that unless you are raising your children in this very small, socially prescribed way that everyone else does it, then you must be damaging them. And that has been applied against all kinds of people. It certainly was a huge argument against multiracial children. Like, oh no, you can't have black and white people together because what about the children? Turns out they're fine. (laughs) Oh, you can't have gay parents. What about the children? Turns out they're fine. (laughs) It's so ironic because like when looking at children in gay families and polyamorous families, the families are not damaging them. The most damaging thing is the social stigma Mm -hmm. coming from other people who are freaked out about their families. So what about the children? Stigma hurts them. Mm -hmm. And if you would stop being an asshole to them, their lives would be fine. In fact, it turns out Children from polyamorous families, at least the families in my study, and I have to say, these families are early adopters, meaning they were already openly polyamorous in the 90s. So that was a long time ago. That was well before the current massive wave of interest Mm -hmm. in polyamory. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are coming from white, highly educated parents who have professional jobs, you know, they're like in healthcare and education and things like that. So they're not necessarily representative of the mainstream of polyamorous life. 
So basically, if you are a child born to a white, highly educated, middle-class parent who has a 401k and health insurance, then it's really not that surprising that you're doing well Mm because race and class privilege make your life better. But also on top of that, what these children are learning from their polyamorous families are a wide range of emotional relationship and communication skills Mm -hmm. that really provide them a lot of resilience later in their life, that what they're learning is how to establish networks of supportive intimacy wherever they go. So they can move out of the house. They can move to a whole new city for college or graduate school where they don't know anyone. And they know how to meet people and get close to them in a way that they're, for instance, seeing some of their peers do not. Some of their peers who've had what looks like on the surface just the kind of upbringing everyone should have, and you can't Mm -hmm. see the air quotes I'm making Mm -hmm. around should, but these peers aren't necessarily furnished with the kind of communication skills, the kind of intimacy skills. They aren't necessarily sure how to deal with conflict if they haven't watched their parents figure out how to negotiate things or how to communicate around difficult feelings for instance. Mm. So these kids, I would say, do notice that they definitely experienced challenges in their family lives. I'm not saying they didn't see any disadvantages at all with growing up in a polyamorous family. Mm -hmm. They encountered family disadvantages, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Getting tired of the adult complexity, you Mm -hmm. know, or wanting to have sleepover supremacy, I call it, that they'll be Mm -hmm. like, mom, I'm having my friends over tonight. So you can't have, you know, like I get dibs on having sleepover tonight. (laughs) So no sleepover for you. And generally in that situation, mom is like, okay, you get this weekend, I'll get next weekend. Mm -hmm. You know, so that idea that they can communicate and negotiate, they can think about what their needs are, They can ask for their needs to be met. They can figure out, okay, how do I get them met and you get your needs met too? Mm -hmm. It's a lot of relationship and personal skills Mm -hmm. they learn in their family that really sets them up to be functional, healthy, happy adults. Mm -hmm. Not that some polyamorous families aren't fucked up. I'm sure that there are some significantly fucked up polyamorous families out there. Mm-hmm. But so are heterosexual monogamous families. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think about it, it's kind of rings true, right? The The polyamorous setup mimics real life more than the dyadic sort of, you know, the, the standard family of mom, dad, and 2.4 children and a white picket fence. Like, that's just not what life looks like. And if the home environment is really there to set you up for life, you know, you might have a comfy life, but it might not set you up for success going forward from that household. The polyamorous setup has more features that align with real life and the skills that you need for real life. So you might, it might not be like the easiest ride, but potentially you're geared up for, you're set up for life um, slightly better. Yeah. What I heard you saying was certainly that, that things that are inherent in a healthy consensual non-monogamous relationship, which are self-reflection, communication, negotiation, emotional maturity, emotional stability, that all of the things that are a part of any healthy relationship, I should just say, and then, you know, the complication of, of more human beings interacting with more human beings makes it more important for people to have disciplines around self-reflection and communication and emotional regulation that being in that environment in and of itself helps to breed children who are self-reflective and communicative and can emotionally regulate. Did you find in your work that in addition to, I imagine via osmosis, kind of soaking that in from the environment, that parents were more intentional about talking to children about those things? Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about that. Absolutely. The parents who learn 
kind of honesty and communication skills in their romantic partnerships, then have those skills trickle down to their parenting. Mm -hmm. And in fact, one of the things that kids really enjoy is the honesty they hear Mm -hmm. from their parents. And I want to emphasize this is age appropriate Mm -hmm. honesty. So the honest answer you give to a four-year-old is going to be different from the honest answer you give to a 14-year-old. Can you talk about that? Because in your book, you you lay out the difference, the distinction between young children and tweens and teens and young adults. Can you go through the different age groups a little bit and talk talk about what that experience may be, how it'd be different depending on the age? So small children developmentally are not really concerned about adults and what the adults are doing. The small children are very concerned about what adults are doing for the child. And that's not just children in polyamorous families. That's across the board. Developmentally little kids are all about themselves. So small children are not distinguishing between dad's friends and dad's boyfriend. It really makes no difference to a three-year-old what dad does with that person behind closed doors after the three-year-old is asleep. Mm -hmm. What makes a lot of difference to that three-year-old is, will that person sit on the floor with me and let me smear makeup all over their face? Will they let me, will they play Legos with me? Will they let me paint their toenails? You know, things like that. That's what little kids Mm -hmm. want. And they don't even notice really generally that their family is different from other families. They just take their family for granted. Although at some point there is this kind of very common thing that happens in polyamorous families that a child will go to another child's house and come home with big news. You guys, that kid only has one parent. Can you believe it? Oh my God. Or they only have two, like they've only got one mom and one dad. Those poor people, they must hardly get any presents for their birthday. Hardly anything, you know. So it's not for these kids that their family, the polyamorous family is weird or different, but that their peers who don't have that polyamorous family are at a disadvantage. They don't get as much attention, affection, and loot, very importantly. For like the elementary school children, they know. Mm-hmm. You know, when you've got seven grandparents, you get a lot of awesome stuff for your birthday. These are facts right now, now. yes. <laughs> totally. Yes. Mm-hmm. Real conversations happen in my house about that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of noticing that they are different from other people, that often happens for children from polyamorous families. Often when they're in elementary school, it's starting to occur to them. But it's often not that big of a deal for them, and they don't have to put a lot of work into hiding it, really, because elementary age kids right now, kind of no matter where they're living in the United States, Divorce is so common that they know a lot of people who, you know, mom's got a new wife and dad's got a new wife too, you know, or a new girlfriend that lives with them or something, or they know somebody who's on their fourth wife or something. I mean, it's not really that unusual to have multiple parents now, generally through divorce. Mm -hmm. Also, it's really easy to distract little kids when they come over to play at a polyamorous household, those children don't really care who these adults are. They're like, what kind of snacks do you have? (laughs) What kind of video games do you have? Do you have a dog? You know, what can we play with? They don't care who's delivering the snacks. That's what adults are. They are sources of batteries for the remote control (laughs) and they can read cookies, you know? Kids in their tweens are really noticing that their families are different. And tweens is a new category that didn't used to exist. It's like 9 to 12 or so Mm -hmm. now is like a tween. Mm -hmm. And they are definitely more aware that their families are different. But it's also not that hard to distract their peers from it. Because an 11-year-old has a fairly limited span of attention and could basically give a shit about the adults. Like they're much more concerned about 
what are their peers doing? You know, they're really kind of more focused on peer feedback. Teens, again, have much more independence from their family. They're not as focused on their family. They're more focused on what their peers are doing. And it's a lot of their peers either don't care or if the teens are concerned that it would be an issue with their peers, they often just don't disclose to that peer. If they have a peer that they don't want to have to deal with explaining all these extra adults, then they meet that peer at the mall, at the park, or whatever. They don't necessarily have to have that peer in their home environment where they've got to then explain how this guy is dad's boyfriend and whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which frankly sounds like any kind of negotiation that any young person who's embarrassed by their parent will feel. I don't want to bring them home because, you know, dad's always in those shorts that are too short. I don't want to bring them home because mom has her afternoon drink and I don't want to expose them to that or my house is too messy or my house is too small or right. So the more that you're sharing, the more it feels like essentially if a young person is loved, if they're supported, if they're taken care of, they can navigate the rest. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what research has very firmly established with children of gays and lesbians, which is kind of the closest comparison category. Mm. They turn out just fine. Mm. And I think polyamorous children from polyamorous families have a lot of the same experiences, only it's easier to be clandestine because Mm. polyamorous families are not as recognizable socially Mm. as gay families, which you know, people understand if you see two women with their child and their dog, you know, that's a lesbian family, clearly Mm -hmm. socially recognizable. You see three people together, even as a polyamorous person, it might not be the first thing that occurs to you Mm -hmm. is that's a polyamorous triad and certainly not to Mm -hmm. the PTA people, unless you come out and say, we're a polyamorous triad. Other people are like, oh, that's a couple and their friend, or that's a group of friends, or mm-hmm. someone and their brother, or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It sounds like to me the main difference is adults looking down at kids without really understanding their experience of them looking out, looking up. That mm-hmm. we kind of project how we feel and the experiences that we've had as adults, and we kind of project that onto kids who haven't had those experiences yet. And they're kind of looking up from they're kind of looking up from where they are and they're like oblivious to adults. They're in their own world. Adolescence is hard anyway. Who cares? And really the only time they get pulled out of their experiences when the adults are going, something's wrong with your family. And they're like, whoa, something's wrong with my family, you know? And until then, they're kind of kind of in their own bubble. Um, somebody was referring to that state of being appropriately narcissistic. So kids are appropriately narcissistic. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Until you kind of burst that bubble, they're kind of in their own bubble, you know, in their own, own world. Until an adult comes along and points out like something is wrong or, or, or pokes in a certain way or stigma, like you said. I think only then the damage really starts. And of course, that's given a, a level playing field. Like, like you said, there are some very fucked up polyamorous families. There's some very fucked up standard families. So the dynamics are what the dynamics are. And it's, it's less about structure, but more about the dynamics is what I'm hearing. Absolutely. In fact, I would say it is all about how people handle their families, whether you're a single parent, whether you're in a dyadic relationship or a polyamorous relationship, it's all about how do you treat your children? How do you deal with them? And treat each other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Some very early research on divorce that freaked everybody out about divorce made these really inappropriate extrapolations from these few families they had looked at to say, oh, divorce is horrible for everyone. Well, then they went back and looked at the sample of the divorce people. And these were high conflict people who were in court ordered therapy, like there had been abuse of some sort and the court had intervened and said, y'all are really messed up. You got to stop hurting your children this way and get some counseling. Mm -hmm. They didn't talk to anyone who had handled their divorce well. Mm -hmm. So of course, Mm -hmm. if you only sample from people who are in court ordered therapy, it doesn't matter if they're divorced or still married or were never married. You know, if they're in that much 
pain and turmoil, it's going to be hard for their kids. Mm -hmm. Since then, more recent and realistic research has looked at a wider range of divorced people and found kids from families that divorce but handle it well don't experience nearly the hardships that kids from families that divorce and beat each other up and burn their house down and, you know, Mm. like have all these horrible, like try to get back at each other in court. Mm. That's really damaging or the financial impact of having the family split Mm. and women who've really focused on raising children then are suddenly trying to get back into the workforce Mm. and the women and children's financial situation deteriorates drastically Mm. and the dad's situation his mm-hmm. his financial situation, he's doing way better. That's mm-hmm. also disadvantageous, but it has nothing to do with who's having sex or not. Mm-hmm. It has all everything to do with how the adults treat each other mm-hmm. and how they treat their children. And the same thing holds true for polyamorous families. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that rings true to me so much. I would also maybe add in there couples who don't divorce but continue to fight and argue in the household. So, okay, they're not divorced, but that's not having a great impact on the kids either. So I imagine couples who don't divorce continue to fight and have a negative state in the household versus couples who do divorce and handle their divorce will have you know, significantly different impact on the kids. And the, the kids of the divorced couple will probably be better adjusted than the, the kids who are stuck in a household of constant conflict. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. So in in your research, it sounded like there were there were a few things that you came to conclusion based on the study that polyamorous families, just like you're saying, can provide healthy, loving, stable environments for children to thrive. That the vast majority of respondents said that the advantages of polyamorous life significantly outweigh the disadvantages. That there are actually specific advantages to being in polyamorous families, including wider social networks and relationship skills that you talk through. And that the disadvantages in polyamorous families were represented in other different types of family constructs, like divorced families or blended families. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the disadvantages. I think that that we want to be sure to tell the balanced story of, and not necessarily poly preach of like, it's great. Everybody's going to be great. It's hard. Scheduling is hard. I'll just speak specifically about my own family. My daughter, her father and I split custody. And so she's with him a week and then with me a week. And so our weeks together are incredibly precious. And during that time, she has been very territorial around our time together. And if I spend too long of a conversation with my wife or I'm on the phone too long with my partner, she actually doesn't care. She And she said on the podcast, you can be with 50 people. She's like, I just don't want you to take away that time from me. <laughs> and I think that's part of the disadvantages. And that's an adult problem in my mind. How do I work out scheduling and balancing my needs and balancing my relationships in a way that doesn't impact my daughter? And so I'm interested in that. What are some of the disadvantages that you came across? I would say that that kind of scheduling is inherent in the complexity mm-hmm. of a polyamorous family. And sometimes the kids get sick of that. I had one kid who was like, another house meeting, you know, like, (laughs) I'm tired of it, you know, but it was important for the family to understand, you know, who's using the car, who's getting the groceries, who's picking this person up, who's working, you know, who needs what. Mm -hmm. And that kind of family complexity thing also impacts large families with a lot of kids that have to be taken places. It impacts blended families with, you know, you're with me this week, you're with your dad next week. Mm -hmm. Kids also didn't like the feeling of stigma, that their family was different and other people look down on it. And it wasn't as difficult to handle in public like with teachers and things or coaches or Girl Scout troop leaders, whatever, where they felt it more so was in their extended families that let's say grandma notices that dad seems to be hanging out with this other person a lot. And instead of just asking grandma, asking her own son, she'll ask her grandchildren, what's dad doing with that woman all the time? And grandma, don't do that. 
ask your son, don't put your grandchildren in that weird position. That sucks. So that kind of sometimes, especially if there are, you know, religious family members that would disapprove of polyamory. So their parents are like, uh, we don't have to discuss this with grandma, but grandma knows something's up that she might be like kind of trying to get information out of the kids. And that's just creepy. That's weird. Mm -hmm. And the kids don't like it. Mm -hmm. I would say a poly specific disadvantage is not being able to get away with things as easily as children in families with fewer parents or <laughs> parents that don't talk to each other. That if a polyamor a child from a polyamorous family is trying to pretend they went somewhere that they didn't actually go, let's say they were supposed to go to the library, but instead they went to the park or mm -hmm. something, trying to remember the story they told and tell it consistently to all of the adults can be really challenging for that kid. So some kids feel really disadvantaged by not being able to get away with anything. They can't speak out. They can't tell lies. They get caught in their lies. Their parents everywhere. Everywhere. And they talk to each other. Right? So that's a big pain in the ass for some kids in polyamorous families. That's, that's really funny. You referenced the fact that you know that the people who were in your study both were early adapters, that they were generally well-educated, that they came from financially stable backgrounds. Do you have any sense based on either some of the research that you've done or anecdotal data, or I know you've done a lot of teaching and presenting, that in communities of color, in communities that are have different populations than the folks that are in your study, does this information translate to those communities? Can you talk a little bit about how we can take these findings and the level of breadth that we can uh, expand out based on the things that you've done the research around? That's a great question. I think to some extent, it does translate directly across race and ethnicity is somewhat irrelevant to the child focusing on what are they getting from the parents, mm -hmm. like the child's race and ethnicity or the parental race and ethnicity doesn't really matter. A three-year-old of any race or ethnicity is going to want attention from a parent. And that's really irrelevant race and ethnicity there. Mm -hmm. I think where it really would come into play is around stigma mm -hmm. and danger, family danger, that if your parents are white and wealthy and own their own home, mm -hmm. then the family is at much less risk if someone else notices they're polyamorous versus if you are living, let's say, in subsidized housing mm -hmm. and people in subsidized housing are under a lot of surveillance mm. who lives there what are they doing there how you know like so being polyamorous and having subsidized housing if the housing authority decides you've got too many people or unrelated people or whatever living with you mm -hmm. they can take away your housing subsidies mm -hmm. so children mm -hmm. That's more class related, but mm -hmm. in the United States, race and class are intricately linked because racism mm -hmm. comes with all sorts of class oppression mm -hmm. and racism just makes life more dangerous mm -hmm. for BIPOC folks. Yeah. So their children are also at greater risk yeah. and anything that kind of distinguishes them from, you know, things that white people get away with willy-nilly, people of color get in huge trouble for. So they're already at greater risk in society, laboring under racism and poverty or whatever, and then add polyamory into that can make things more difficult. Yeah, I think. Mm -hmm. No, I, I appreciate it. I think that's all true. I think that's all true. I think that, that there is potentially greater cultural stigma, religious stigma. I think certainly if there's financial insecurity, if there are perceptions around 
non-ethical non-monogamy that in particular communities let's say if there are multiple families or there's a history of infidelity or things like that that there can be a perception about what that means and that that can infiltrate a household even if there's consensual non-monogamy and so i hear what you're saying in terms of the, the diverse set of factors and variables that can influence whether or not something feels safe and frankly none of those actually have to do with going back to what you talked about in the beginning the construct itself all of it is around the stigma, the perception, or the social constructs that create these in, this instability, but not how many people love each other. Absolutely. That at the end of the day, how many people love each other and care for each other does nothing but create complexity that can, that can help us, allow us to grow and thrive. And it's these other things that are factors in whether or not leads to thriving for adults or children. And it's such a good question that I really want. So the book we're talking about, Children and Polyamorous Families, that's a tiny little, very short book aimed at lay people, just readers who are interested in the family style. I'm working also on the longer research mm -hmm. book. And for that, I would really like to interview a wider range of people. Mm -hmm. in terms of children of color who've grown up in consensually non-monogamous families, just mm -hmm. to broaden my sample and have kind of a comparison group, which has also meant that that book that I was like, oh, that's going to come out in 2021. Now that's probably not going to come out until maybe 2023 because I, I have more data collection to do. Yeah, nice. I also wonder if, cult, like, is there like a flip side to that where certain cultures, again, I, I'm, I'm treading in lightly, as, as lightly as I can, but for example, Hispanic cultures where there is a conception of a big family, like people are used to living in multi-generational big families with multiple people, they're kind of taking parental roles, that it isn't so classic mom, dad and the kids, but it's like grandma and then granddad and uncle that maybe either live in the same house or downstairs or next door that the family concept is broader maybe those people might adapt to polyamory easier because they don't have such a sort of a rigid understanding of what family is i wonder if actually has if there's a flip side to it as well in that way i could definitely see that in that case they may not necessarily label it as polyamory mm. you know they may label it as something else they may not even label it they may just live it without kind of constructing a sex and gender minority identity around it, but might just be like, here we go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would say that that's pretty characteristic of communities of color that for instance, have long had same sex relationships, but don't necessarily come out and make a big statement around it. You know, it's just uncle Joe and his long-term roommate. Yeah, and they've lived together for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And his friend comes to, you know, like Christmas and Thanksgiving, but they didn't make this big statement to the family. Uncle Joe mm -hmm. is gay. But the family just kind of accepts it. And it's, so it kind of flies in the face of this very white conception mm -hmm. that there is one way to be out. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that is like, verbal full blast all the time and that's the only way that you are legitimately out and if you don't do it that way you're doing it wrong mm -hmm. and that's just not true it's yeah. not not true that there's only one way to be out or that there's only one way to define and label consensual non-monogamy that it could look all sorts of different ways and polyamory is one way to label it and has had up, i would say up until the past 10 years maybe has had a very white face and now the community itself is much more diverse and the leadership is much more diverse. And yet I would say like I've, I've interviewed some black respondents who've said, you know, if I told my family about that, they'd be like, this is some nasty white person shit. I don't know why you're mm -hmm. doing that. That is nasty white people thing. And we don't do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, I want to both expand and kind of push back a little bit on this conversation, too, because I want to expand on the idea that I agree that I think that so much of this has been going on for so long without the labels. So to your point, you know, I, I, I come from Hispanic family and when my my sister identifies as lesbian, bisexual, and she 
she has had friends over the house and friends to visit our family, you know, back on the island since high school. And you can tell the difference because they would either say, oh, this this is, you know, her friend or they would say, this is her friend. And that's just like (laughs) distinction there is saying it. So this date, she is now in her 30s, has been with her partner for over 10 years. And every time they introduce her, they're like, this is, you know, this is her and this is her, her friend. And so similarly, my my grandparents or rather my great grandparents had multiple families. So my great grandfather had four children with this woman, four children with this woman, four children with this woman, multiple different families, children and different. And that was kind of commonplace. Certainly no one was saying that that was an open relationship or that was polyamory or anything. So I I agree that those labeling exist. And I would say that that exists, at least in my perception, within the white community in in like, you know, someone in a mistress, for example, or a second family that no one knows about or the you know secretary that you're sleeping with. And so there were ways in which these constructs lived in many different cultures that we just weren't naming it as such. Mm-hmm. And what I heard you saying, Effie, is could people adapt to this construct because it's a part of their culture? I think that's probably exists everywhere. I think mm-hmm. the don't ask, don't tell relationship of like, you know, stay at home mom, working father who may or may not be having an affair is a version of non-monogamy in the don't ask, don't tell. How consensual it is depends on who you're asking. I do think that that can fit in. The question is, is it healthy? Is it thriving? Was there stigma? Again, even in my dynamic where I lived in multi-generations. So my grandparents did live with in the household with us. My grandparents would not be okay. (laughs) Like, and this is my wife and this is my girlfriend. Like that, those two things are not the same, even though that they have a perception of a different perception of what, you know, a family would look like. It crosses a moral boundary for them that I think is more complex. Um, And these are the same grandparents whose parents had multiple children and multiple families. But I also think it's different if it's a man doing it. In terms of historically, that is fair. And cross culturally, almost every society that sociologists, historians, anthropologists that we found, Hmm. wealthy, powerful men Mm -hmm. get multiple women. Hmm. You know, like if you're a rich, powerful man, you can have multiple wives or a courtesan and a wife or a girlfriend and a mistress, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's the big difference now, I think, is women who engage in polyamory. Generally, where polyamory happens in the world, women can get an education, they can earn their own money. They can choose their own partners. They can control their fertility, which is very different. So if women don't have their own power, we tend to get polygyny, which is one husband with multiple wives. Mm-hmm. It's only women only get multiple partners when we can make our own decisions and control our own lives pretty much. So that's why this kind of consensual non-monogamy is really a feature, has only come into being since I would say about 1950 yeah. and forward. I completely agree with you. I think the, the, the path of, of polyamory aligns with the, the path of the feminist, feminist movement. There's a correlations and causations that are very clear um, and where it move like when one moves one direction and the other one follows, and I think it's it's wherever the feminist movement is has a huge impact on where what polyamory looks like in that moment and in that place and time, for sure. Yeah, super interesting, and particularly again, not only as a parent but the parent of at least at this moment a self-identified you know cis female. I tell her she has flexibility to change that at, at any point, but it is an interesting conversation around. Not only what are we role modeling, what are the environments that we're creating where our, where our children can thrive, but what are the environments and that we are role modeling and showcasing so that they believe that they can create constructs and relationships and communities and families that align with their truth as opposed to aligning with the narrative that has mm-hmm. been prescribed. 
And, you know, I've shared this in the past, but I, I think it's in context, so I'll share it again, that as much as I have shown that my daughter can love as many people as she wants in whatever gender identity, in whatever configuration, she in this moment is tent on marrying a single man and having a single child. <laughs> she was like, thank you so much for all the options. I am going to be cis and I'm going to be hetero and I'm going to be monogamous. And so for those of you who are worried about my the children... <laughs> <laughs> this is where I learned. And what I love is how uh, th that she's able to say that she cannot be articulate enough to know mm -hmm. here are my options and this is what I choose. And I think right. that's the fact that she knows her options, she can articulate and reflect on her options is more important than wherever she lands. Like she's going to land wherever she's going to land, exactly. knowing that what that she has multiple paths and she chooses it and she knows that these are out there for her, I think is way more important than for her well-being, um, state of mind, future security, then wherever she lands, because it will be an informed decision rather than imposed decision, mm -hmm. which as a, as a young woman, she's going to have to fight against imposed decisions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, if you think about it, she comes from a multiracial couple mm -hmm. who then divorced. Mm -hmm. Now she has a mom who is a queer mom, is married to a woman and has a long-term partner. So she ticks so many of these boxes mm -hmm. and you speak to her and we have our own record. So rewind back <laughs> a couple of episodes. Um, if you don't believe us, like make your own mind up, you know, right. just like make your own mind up to how brilliant and clear and informed she is. And yeah. I think I know she's only just one kid, but she's the poster child mm -hmm. of the kid that everyone's worried about, you know, and you look at her and she's brilliant. Yeah. So um, and that speaks to, I mean, that speaks to first and foremost, Jackie's parenting, hands down. And also to that, you know, it's not about the structure. It's about dynamic. It's about how much love and um, guidance there is out there. Yeah. I think personally, as a parent, one of the biggest lessons that I learned in my personal shift during that time in my life when I got divorced and, you know, got remarried, opened up my relationship was, I was as a parent preparing her to be successful in the world. I think as all parents do, like we want our children to be safe and successful, but that often means trying to craft them and mold them so they will fit into the world. And my perspective as a parent changed to help her know herself deeply and trust that in her knowledge of her own self, she would be able to navigate through any world. Because frankly, the world I was preparing her for was the world of that moment. And the world that she would need to navigate was 20, 30 years in the, into the future. And so there's no way I could prepare her for that. So I just wanted to prepare her to know herself and she'll do the rest. And that's what I hear, you know, when I read your research is prepare th them to thrive by, way, by allowing them to thrive. <laughs> if you love children, if you take care of them, right. they will thrive no matter the situation. And they really do well with a wide safety net. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, like having multiple adults in their life who care about them and that they can go to for help and advice or even practical assistance or emotional support that's good for a kid. And the kid doesn't care what, if any, sexual relationship those adults are having. Mm -hmm. You know, what they care about is, can I trust this person? Is this person there for me? Will they help me? Mm -hmm. And that can be true when that kid is 13 or 35, too. Mm -hmm. You know, as these kids age into adults, still having that wider range of, you know, like an entire network of people that they can rely on. Yeah, that's really important. And it doesn't matter whether they as as you know, when they become adults, whether they're having multiple partners or not, that's totally irrelevant mm. to their ability to have this emotionally resilient life where they can create and sustain intimacy. Mm. Doesn't have to be sexual intimacy. I love that. I think actually that's a beautiful way to end it too, is to think about, because I think I've been thinking about the children as children. And I think what you just shared helped me realize I too am a child <laughs> of somebody, of a set of parents, mm -hmm. that the way that they were concerned about me and, you know, the conversations that we had about my open relationship were not rooted in that feeling that I can, I, I can be healthy and thrive. 
and, and appreciating my emotional resiliency and appreciating who I was. And so for those of you with older children, same message applies. <laughs> Copy right. and paste, right? Continue right. to love your child of any age. Continue to support your child of any age. Continue to create stability for your child of any age. Thank you. This was a beautiful conversation. As always, so super interesting and informative. And yeah, great. Thank you, Eli. This was, this was, we can do this forever. We can just like heavy back on, <laughs> see where you're at in your research, ask all the questions. Um, I always walk away clearer and, and consider things with more nuance that I had, you know, I had already. And I love what I also find that whenever we speak, you know, we try to be diverse, like diversity is always in front of our mind uh, when we're doing anything to do within our lives, but certainly Curious Fox work. I find that whenever I speak to you, there's a layer of acceptance of diversity that really kind of opens parts of my brain to think about anywhere from race and gender and, and socioeconomic backgrounds and in just the way that you tell stories and the way, the way that you pull examples. It really sort of this ingrained idea of diversity, which I really do appreciate in these conversations. So um, I just wanted to point that out and thank you for it. Thanks so much for having me on. I always enjoy talking to you. Yay. Yay. As always, I really appreciate the insight and humor and multi-layered aha moments that Dr. Eli Chef brings to the conversation. I love her. I find that... Even though this is the stuff that I, we live, breathe, learn, read, talk about all day, every day, I find that any conversation with Eli has new insights, new depths, new angles that I just haven't seen, considered, learned about. And I keep thinking, oh, next conversation, I will have, you know, I will have just know everything. It'll be fine. Like nothing will be new. And every time we have a conversation with her, I find that something new comes up. And, you know, if it's not new information, it's a new angle. If it's not a new angle, it's a new way of referring to things. Mm -hmm. I find that her language is always radically inclusive and diverse. Like she's the kind of professor that I wish I had to school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate, I, again, I appreciate how funny she was. I appreciate the number of moments where I was like, that resonated totally. Like my yeah. daughter's like, I don't know who you are, care, but do you have a gift for me or do you have snacks? Like if, right. <laughs> right, <totally. laughs> like if you care about my mom, you treat her well and you bring me gifts and snacks, like we're good. We're good. And totally. that seems like, that seems to be a childhood thing across the board. So that was pretty funny. Mm. And I appreciate the, her willingness to really hear diverse perspectives and, you know, allowed me to, to push back on some of the things around my experience as a woman of color and, and in my culture and family. And I appreciate that she is interested in diving into that research. I appreciate mm-hmm. that she was candid about the fact that the people who she has been studying and researching really do fit a particular ethnicity and class. Mm-hmm. And that while so many of the lessons that she's learned are transferable to anybody, that there is an element of stigma and risk that mm-hmm. are different depending on your culture, your religion, your race, your class. And so, yeah, yeah so that was one of the things that I want to explore in, in the takeaways because I, yeah. I that was fascinating for me. Yeah. I think this is the problem with research, right? I mean, any researcher that you speak to, they realize their their sample size or their sample group is, you know, inherently self-selecting because mm-hmm. people who are willing to be in research are a certain type of people. And similar to like a lot of research out there is often done on college students because that's what the researchers have access to. Mm-hmm. And that immediately stipulates a certain group of people and excludes a certain group of people. The fact that you're in college, especially in the U S I find to be, uh, you just immediately you're in a certain class. Mm -hmm. So I think that, and also people who feel like they're free to talk about this kind of stuff also have a level of social security around them, be it in their own social security or family or financial and racial, all that kind of stuff. And people who are more at the margins, I think, are more reluctant to talk about their situation because there's a lot of fear around it and and stigma comes at a higher cost for them. So I think it is hard to have true diversity in a lot of research, especially this kind of sociology uh, research, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. I think so... 
based on what we're talking about, there was three takeaways in listening back to the conversation that landed for me. And one is around that, right? That first, if a family is healthy, then what is damaging is not the open construct. Instead, it's the stigma from other people Mm, that creates the issue for children. Right. Right. And frankly, that's true, not only of families that are are polyamorous, but for queer families or multiracial families or family with different cultures or religions. And when there's a difference somehow that triggers judgment or uninvited comments or prying Mm -hmm. from others, it's Mm -hmm. that reaction that creates the problem. Again, particularly when, and this was really interesting and made a lot of sense, particularly when that stigma is coming from extended family members. Mm-hmm. She said, not from the Girl Scouts, right? Not from the right. church group, but right, and it's right, like right. grandma. grandma. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. It makes sense, right? I mean, it kind mm-hmm. of makes sense to me. I think that especially these days, a lot of professionals that deal with children are trained in these ways. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about this the other day, like, I discovered this, that at school now people, teachers are asking kids, who's your grown up? Or Mm -hmm. is this your grown up? You know, instead of, is this your dad? Is this your mom? Like they've Mm -hmm. taken the the assumption out of it and they're asking like much more of a broader question of like, is this your grown up? So I think schools, teachers, coaches, Girl Scouts, they are somewhat trained in this kind of setups, but grandma, you know, Mm -hmm. is a couple of generations behind isn't on board. Yes. And, you know, and having had this conversation with my mom, you know, with mm-hmm. my, and, and really, really my grandma, my grandpa being a, a concern, the concern is not that they can't wrap their mind around it, is that they are also going to be like, well, what will people say? Mm-hmm. And what are people going to think? And it's mm-hmm. their concern around the stigma. And I want to say, you're the stigma. Exactly. Like, you're the one that's contributing to that. And so, you know, to to what we were just talking about, it was also really important that she noted the distinction between Mm -hmm. stigma and risk Mm -hmm. and that race and class and wealth provide a buffer to Mm -hmm. risk that needs to be acknowledged because you may have stigma and you may, you know, want to keep some things discreet, but you can have the privilege of navigating past stigma without there being risk to your job risk sure. to your home, risk to your family. Mm-hmm. And that is something, again, that, that race, that class, that privilege, that wealth affords some people that doesn't afford others. And mm-hmm. I appreciate that being a part of, of the story because it's very real. Yes. I mean, th- think about it. It's very real for us. Like considering Absolutely. the work that we do, that this podcast, how openly we share about our lifestyle, our choices. Yes. And, you know, we share on the podcast, we share on social media, we write about it, we talk about it on panels and we host uh, events and, and we're open. That's a privilege. We know we know yes. we can do that because ultimately we feel secure in our future. We feel yes. secure that it's not going to affect what we do, our livelihood. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a chosen, you know, a chosen network of people that will support us regardless. And that's not available to everyone. And I, you know, that was something that I really felt when she was talking about it, because I I live that, like I have that privilege. Mm -hmm. I can talk about open relationships. I can talk about sex and all those things and, and my preferences in the world and hold the belief that it will not affect me in a way that I can't solve. You know, I mean, it will. I will come across people and I will be challenged and I will be stigmatized but I can brush that off. It'll just be words. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a huge distinction between what I can do and what other people that I know that really have to keep their, keep their lives wrapped up and have to remain in the closet because it will cost them their livelihood. Yeah, it's absolutely true. We both have some financial security. We spent years in, in the corporate world and mm-hmm. we built up our own practices. We work for ourselves now, mm-hmm. um, you know, women of color, but white presenting. There's a lot of things that give us the ability to be as vocal as we are. And so I do recognize that privilege. And I think I appreciate having that level of of dialogue because it Mm -hmm. does impact the children. Mm -hmm. We're talking about the children. And actually, that was my second takeaway, that what this is really about is actually not about the children. It's Mm -hmm. about adult complexity, the stigma and the risk and all these things has to do with adult construct and that children are tired of adult complexity. And can I say that I too am tired of adult complexity, you know, <laughs> right. Yeah. That like the scheduling and the breakups and the conflict between grownups and the shade thrown at each other and the judgment and like, those are things that impact children more than who loves 
or sleeps with whom. Exactly. Exactly. I think that is very true. And I think, I think we talked about it during the interview as well. It's like we as adults look down on children and we judge meaning like i don't mean look down as in disparage but look down as in like the angle we we, mm-hmm. we, we look at it from from our point of view as a grown-up life when we project it onto children but children are sort of having their own lives and looking up at us and mm-hmm. going what's up with all the complexity you know like can we just like hang around play video games have some snacks and like relax with all the all the um house meetings you know right right can i just <laughs> Can I, can I have a dog? Can I, can I pay with, play Robux? Can I see right. my friends? Like that's, right. are there any good snacks? Right. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, they are fine until an adult comes along and tells them their lifestyle is wrong or their mom is doing wrong or, you know, their dad is going to hell or all these, like it, it's the adults that bring up, bring all that stuff up for the kids. Kids seem to be really, really fine. Yeah. Yes. So the answer to the question, right? What about the children? The children are fine. <laughs> exactly. What about the grownups? <laughs> Get your act together, grownups. Yes. Yes. Because totally. even, even, and, and, you know, and, and you and I deal with this, particularly you more so because you, you work with couples and families and, and triads and groups that are navigating through open dynamics. The complexity that happens, the adult complexity that happens in a relationship can be really hard for the grownups in the relationship. Mm-hmm and can create stress and depression and anxiety and conflict. And that is what is impacting the children. It is adults not being able to emotionally regulate or adults not being able to communicate or to process their feelings or navigate through relationships well. And that happens in every dynamic. That happens with monogamous, hetero, cisgendered couples that are, that are struggling or going through divorce. Like this is not a poly issue. Absolutely. I love their example of a messy divorce between a mm. cisgendered, hetero, heteronormative, mm-hmm. you know, dyad couple versus a happy functioning, you know, poly family. Mm-hmm. That divorce is going to cause so much more hassle, so much more pain and suffering to the child than, you know, having four parents who right. live in the same house and have their shit together. You know, yet from the outside, we will be like, oh, well, divorce is nothing. Everyone's getting divorced or, you know, people will protect the, the, the couple and they'll be like, oh, well, they're, you know, that's the right choice. When no, like when they're dragging each other through the courts, like, OK, so they're heteronormative, but it's painful and it's damaging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we this was true in the conversation that we had even with my daughter. What felt more significant for her was the fact that her parents were divorced more so than the fact that her mother is in multiple relationships and her father's Mm -hmm. exploring open relationships like that wasn't that was much less interesting and important to her. So actually, that leads beautifully to my third takeaway, which is if children are loved, if they are supported, if they're taken care of, then they're going to navigate the rest. And in fact, being in polyamorous families can help children as Eli Chef said, develop a wide range of emotional, relational, and communication skills that provide resilience later in life and help them learn how to establish networks of emotional intimacy as adults. And so the children are fine. It's the adults that we have to worry about. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, I want to add to this idea of children being loved and supported. Absolutely, those things. And I think the other thing that children crave is to be seen and to be heard. Mm. And I think that is how they get to understand, they get to develop a a sense of self and um, a robust sense of self. And I think having multiple adults around them who's willing to see and hear them who can reflect back to them role model to them a a healthy thriving way of living is what they need and having more of those adults that can do that is ultimately going to be healthier Mm -hmm. not unhealthy and I think that's a really important thing to consider and if you think about it parenting is hard Mm-hmm. Giving your attention to a kid 24-7 is hard. When you have a multiple parents who can do that, multiple adults who can do that, that is more attention, more space for kids to, to really connect. That can only be a good thing, really. Mm-hmm. It's true. And, it, you know, at, in my situation, for example, I'm still like single parenting, even though I live with my wife and I have my partner. 
And so the dynamic may be different and it's difficult to carve out time for yourself as, as an adult and to role model. It's hard to be uh, raise a human and try to be human. <laughs> like that's really <laughs> the, what it comes down to for yeah. me. And I think that I, all of this was worse for us to answer the question, like, what about the children? If the adults are okay, then the children are going to be okay. Like really, exactly. you know, I think we need to focus on on taking care of ourselves and, and mm-hmm. treating ourselves with love and respect and, and treating our children with love and respect and like the rest will follow. Mm-hmm. So if you want to hear for more from Dr. Eli Chef, she can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Dr. Eli Chef or on her website at elizabethchef.com. On her website, you can find a wealth of resources for polyamorous individuals, partners, families, and for therapists who are interested in expanding their knowledge and work with clients who are in consensual non-monogamous relationships. Her book, Children in Polyamorous Families, is a quick read, about 20 pages long, and highlights her findings to date with families that she has been researching since the 90s. The book is available on Amazon.com, on Kindle, and other online stores. If you're interested in finding more about Curious Fox, and you can visit us on Instagram at We Are Curious Foxes. While you're there, click on that blue follow button and stay connected to join in on the conversation and the fun. And since you're already on your phone, you might as well join the Facebook group and you can like and share and follow this podcast as well. We love every single comment, every follow, every share really makes a difference as we're trying to grow and expand the message and change the noise. You can also join us on Patreon and become a supporter of Curious Fox community to get access to exclusive events, podcast extras, Ask Me Anythings with Effie Blue, and so much more. If you are interested in a particular topic that you would like us to explore on the podcast, or you have a question, something that you want to share with us, there's a few ways that you can get in touch with us. You can email us at listening at wearecuriousfoxes.com. You can send us a voice memo to that same email address, or you can record a question or a comment by calling our podcast hotline at 201-870-0063. This episode is produced and edited by the incredible Nina Pollock. Nina's skills in the editing room makes us believe in miracles. Our outro music is composed by Dave Saha. We are so grateful for their work. And we're grateful to you for listening. As always, stay curious, friends. Curious Fox podcast is not and will never be the final word on any topic. We solely aim to encourage curiosity and provide a space for exploration through connection and story. We encourage you to listen with an open and curious mind and we'll look forward to your feedback. Stay curious, friends. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious.